So Rachel, or Rachel as she's called in Hebrew, is one of our four matriarchs, along with Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, who are considered our four matriarchs, because Abraham's wife, Isaac's wife, and Jacob had two wives, Rebecca and Leah, as well as he had children with two maids, Bilhah and Zilpah. So um, Rebecca is the daughter, so Rachel is the daughter of Laban, Lavan, who is Rebecca's brother, and um, who we mentioned last week, the Torah describes as not an honest person, but he was Jacob's uncle. When Jacob ran away from, when Jacob ran away from his brother Esau and came to Haran, the first person he met was Rachel, Rachel, um, and so, uh, he he meets Rachel at the well. When he comes to the well, he meets Rachel. And as soon as he meets her, she's a shepherd, and he feeds her sheep. Um, the Torah tells us that he kissed her, and he cried with her the first time he met her. And um, he loved, the Torah tells us that Jacob loved Rachel, who was beautiful, and not her older sister, Leah. Now, the Midrash gives us a little bit more background over here. Um, it was very common for people at that time, um, until fairly recently, It was pretty common for people. It was pretty common for people at that time and until fairly recently to marry relatives, and so the assumption was that um, Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel, were going to marry Jake, um, Isaac's two sons, Asav and um, Asav and Jacob. And uh, because Leah was the older daughter, she would marry the oldest son, Esau, and Rachel, the younger daughter, would marry the younger son, um, Jacob. Now, Leah was very upset about this rumor that she was going to marry Esau because she was, a, she was a righteous girl, a good girl, and she heard about Esau's wickedness and did not want to mar- end up with, she did not want to end up with Esau. Um, yet Jacob um, fell in love with Rachel, and um, our sages actually say in Kabbalah we're told that um, Jacob's soul indeed matched that of Rachel, and Asaph's soul matched that of Leah, but because Asaph had gone off and had, um, because of his bad ways, Leah could not marry, and because of her righteousness, Leah could not marry Asaph, and was therefore, as we'll see, was forced to marry Jacob. So anyway, Jacob tells Laban that he wants, he asks Laban for permission to marry Rachel, um, Laban agrees for him to marry Rachel on condition that he works for him for seven years, something that later Rachel resents, um, because usually um, you know, fathers then would allow their daughters to marry. Um, usually they would give them gifts and um, dowries rather than charge the son-in-law to marry the daughter. It was unheard of even then. Um, so anyway, so Jacob does work for seven years for the right to marry Rachel. But then it comes time to the wedding, for the wedding. And the Torah tells us that um, Laban tricked Jacob and put Leah in the room instead of Jacob. The, exactly how it happened, we don't know. Presumably the wedding itself 
Um, if they had a ceremony, then we don't know what they had. Um, the bride would have been veiled, as we have today. Only now our custom is that the groom puts the veil on the bride. Um, and uh, presumably the celebrations were done separate. Men and women were separated, and so they did not celebrate together. And um, then at night it was dark, and so he didn't see. Um, the Midrash says that Rachel and Leah were identical. It was hard to tell the difference between them. Anyway, our sages, though, say that Jacob... It also says that uh, please. There, there was a, a secret please. word. One at a time. It also said that Rachel had a secret word, so that if... I'm going to get to that. Yes, oh. Stephen. They couldn't have been identical, because we always hear about how Rachel is this... Beauty and okay, they could not have been identical. Fair enough. So, um, so the Midrash tells us that at this, or the Talmud actually mentions that, that um, Jacob suspected Laban will do such a thing. And so therefore, in order to protect himself against it, he gave Rachel certain signs. And um, he gave her certain signs and that she would, he would ask her for the signs and she would share with him in order to know that he, she was the right one. And it was not Leah pretending to be Rachel. And so, um, indeed, um, when Rachel saw that her, her sister Leah was the one being taken for Jacob, um, she was afraid that Leah would be extremely embarrassed um, when Jacob discovers she is the wrong one. Um, it would be a very, very uncomfortable situation. And so therefore, in order to avoid her sister, the embarrassment, she shared the signs with her sister, Leah. And so... Why would she do that? She didn't want... He wanted her to avoid that uncomfortable situation. So she loved her sister. And so... And so Jacob, the next day, does the thought till the next morning that Jacob discovers it's the wrong girl. And so he goes to Laban and he asks, he asks Laban, didn't I, we agree on Rachel, why did you give me the wrong one? And Laban says, well, you didn't think I would give you Rachel before Leah. You can't marry off the younger one before the older one. And so, but Laban has a solution. He says, if you like, I can, you can work for another seven years and you can marry Rachel as well. And so Jacob marries, um, Jacob agrees, he marries Rachel. He is now married to two sisters. I should note that the Torah later forbids a person to marry two sisters. Um, the Torah does not outlaw polygamy. Polygamy was only... Polygamy was only outlawed at a much later stage in Judaism. It is. Polygamy was outlawed at a much later stage in Judaism. Um, but it is illegal today. It's not accepted in Jewish law at all. But it was okay then. Marrying two sisters was not okay in the Torah. The Torah explicitly prohibits marrying two sisters. Um, and, however, Jacob lived before the Torah was given. And therefore, he would not have been... Um, he would not have been prohibited by that prohibition. Yes, Steve? Does the prohibition on um, polygamy apply to Sephardim? Yes. Um, but subject of another class, we actually did a class some time ago on polygamy. So, 
Jacob's now married to both sisters. Leah has children straight away. She has four sons, one after the other. Ultimately, she has six sons and a daughter. Rachel, however, has no children. And so, having no children, she asked Jacob, as Sarah had done when she had no children, to have a child with her maid um, so that she can raise those children that Jacob has with her maid. Jacob has two sons with her maid, Bilhah, um, Dan and um, Naphtali. And so, and for her to raise those children. At one point, um, we mentioned this in last week's, story, last week's Parsha, that uh, Rachel bring, uh, sorry, Leah's oldest son, Reuben, brings flowers called Dudaim, um, to, we don't know exactly what kind of flowers they were, or herbs um, that were apparently good for um, infertility, and for fertility, and um, uh, she brings it to her mother Leah. Rachel asks um, asks Leah for the for the um, Leah at the time is upset with Rachel. She says, "You take my husband, and you want my dudaim as well." Apparently, Jacob gave Rachel more time and more attention, and so Rachel agreed that she would give up her time um, with Jacob for to her sister in exchange for the dudaim. Um, and um, so that's just an incident that happens with Rachel. However, finally, after seven years of marriage, some, after some time, finally Rachel has her son. She, her, her, um, maid, Jacob already has son, two sons with her maid and with another maid, Zilpah, and six sons and a daughter with Leah at this point. And finally, she has her son, Joseph, is born. As we yes. read about these births yesterday mm-hmm. in the Parsha, Almost every birth was a multiple birth. It was a, a male child and a female, sometimes multiple females. Almost made me remember of dogs and litters. Um, is this part of our inborn capability that we normally have multiple? Very births good, or? very good question. Let's save that till after the class. <laughs> happened again in the Yes. Is there something that they talk about in the... Um... Clearly there's a connection between the two, but let's not go... We're not, I'm going to focus on Rachel for now. So, later on their way back to Canaan, as we mentioned today, they're almost at Bethlehem. Rachel goes into childbirth, and she has her son, Benjamin. Um, originally, she's in a lot of pain in childbirth. She calls him Ben-Oni, the son of my affliction, because of the pain that she went through. Um, and, um, Jacob call, and Jacob calls him Binyamin, the son of Yamin, is either the right or the south. He was born in the south, in the land of Canaan, which is south of where he lived previously. And so he calls him Binyamin or Benjamin. And so she dies young. Um, we don't know her exact age at this point. Um, she would have been married to Jacob by now for about 15 years, but she was still in chi- her childbearing years. So she dies fairly young, um, uh, and much younger than all of Jacob, all than Jacob's other wife Leah and our other matriarchs. Why did Rachel die young? Ultimately, we don't know why people die uh, young. Unfortunately, it happens today, and we don't know or claim to know. However, the midrash gives us some interesting explanations as to why Rachel died young. 
Um, the Midrash tells us that, uh, the Torah tells us, sorry, that when they left, when they left Haran, when they ran away from Laban, um, Rachel stole her father's trophim, which is usually translated as idols. She stole her father's idols. Why did she steal her father's idols? The Torah doesn't tell us why. The Midrash says that Rachel had no use herself for idols. As our matriarch, definitely Rachel would have been a um, monotheist, not believing in idols. She must have stolen her father's idols because she was hoping that her father would stop worshipping idols once his idols are stolen. Anyway, when Laban catches up to when Laban catches up to Jacob and complains to Jacob, Laban says, Now that you've left, why did you steal my idols? Jacob, knowing nothing about the stolen idols, says, I didn't steal your idols. Go search through my things, see if you can find them. If anybody has stolen your idols, they should die. A curse. He curses anyone who stole the idols. He doesn't know that Rachel has stolen the idols. Laban searches through the everything and um, doesn't find anything. He enters Rachel's tent, and Rachel is sitting on the... She's sitting on her um, camel saddle, and, um, and she says, I cannot stand up. She's not well at the time. Uh, that's the excuse she gives, and she's sitting with the idols underneath her. Apparently they were small mini-idols. And so um, Laban doesn't find them. Our sages, however, say the curse of a righteous person, even if unintended, still comes true, and therefore Rachel, um, as a result, Rachel died. Um, so that's the reason given our sages why it happened, um, but ultimately, um, um, ultimately, we don't really know why people die young or why God does things. You don't have another but explanation? We're going to work on that one. Will you leave it, with it, leave it with that one for now? That's the one everyone knows, though. That's the one of the Midrash. Oh, why Laban was not Jewish. Laban was an idolater. Laban was the father-in-law. He was not a good person. So, um, so anyway, so Jacob then buries Rachel, as we mentioned earlier, um, right outside Bethlehem, um, on the side of the road, just a little before Bethlehem. They hadn't yet even reached Bethlehem. On the side of the road, just a little bit out of the town of Bethlehem. And um, it's there today, um, Rachel's tomb, just north of Bethlehem. He was traveling south from Syria down to Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem. And so just north of Bethlehem, just which Bethlehem's a little south of Jerusalem. So just south of Jerusalem, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, lies Rachel's tomb. And so he buries her on the side of the road. And um, later, before Jacob's death, he speaks to Joseph, and when he asks Joseph to take him, he was then in, he's in Egypt when he dies, and he asks Joseph to carry him out of Egypt and bring him back to the tomb of the patriarchs, the matriarchs in Hebron. And he mentions to Joseph, I know that I did not bury your mother in Hebron, I buried her on the side of the road. He doesn't explain in the Torah why he did it, but he does mention, I know you're not happy about that. Um, our sages say that Jacob buried Rachel on the side of the road because God told him to do so. That's why he did so. Why did God tell him to do so? Because that way, Jacob's, uh, Rachel's grave is right near Jerusalem, and it is going to be a place where Rachel's descendants are going to later pray. Firstly, Joseph himself, we are told, 
on his way down to Egypt when he is sold as a slave by his brothers. Um, so the, tr- the um, traders that bring him, carry him down to Egypt are going from Shechem where he was sold. They are traveling south to Egypt. On the way, on the road, they go down the road through Bethlehem. Joseph passes on the road his mother's tomb and he, they allow him to stop for a moment to pray at his mother's tomb. Then, um, then but many, many years later, we are told, the, um, more than a thousand years later, um, the first temple is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to take all the people of Israel and, or, and those left in Jerusalem after the war and take them as slaves, take them to Babylon. And they were all taken back to Babylon. And on their way out of Jerusalem, as they're, passing, as they're leaving Jerusalem, they pass Rachel's tomb and over there, they are going to pray and ask Rachel um, to uh, pray to God and ask Rachel to ask God to help them to intercede on their behalf and um, ask God to um, help them in their captivity. Indeed, the Midrash tells us further that at the time of the destruction of the temple, the prophet Jeremiah went uh, turns to God and ask God not to destroy the temple to protect his to protect his children to protect his people. And so God refuses to listen. God is determined to destroy the temple. And so he goes to the cave of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron and he turns to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah and ask them to pray on behalf of their children. And they all turn to God on behalf of their children, their souls, and God refuses to listen to them. And then he makes his way to Rachel's tomb. And over there he prays at Rachel's tomb and he asks God to to protect his people. And here we have actually a prophecy in Jeremiah um, uh, and sorry, that Rachel then turns to God to save her people, and in and asks God to save her. Ask God to save her people. The midrash tells us she turns to God and she says, "When I was in a difficult situation, my sister was going to be married to Jacob instead of me, and I could have been quiet and said nothing, and Jacob would have realized that she doesn't know the signs, and I would have gotten to marry Jacob." Instead, because I was afraid of my sister's discomfort, I loved my sister and cared for her. I, was, I gave her the signs in order that she should get to marry Jacob instead of me. Just as I had that kindness and love for my sister, so too you, God, should have the same kindness and love for your children. And so the uh, Midrash tells us when God heard these words from Rachel, God responds that yes, I will protect your children in captivity and exile, and I will bring them back. And that is the meaning behind a very famous prophecy of Jeremiah. Um, there's a prophecy in Jeremiah where Jeremiah says, Kol nishma, a voice is heard in Rama, Rachel al Rachel is Rachel is um, crying for her children, refusing to be comforted. And God responds to Rachel's cry in this prophecy of Jeremiah. Um, 
Um, um, God tells her, "Mini kolech mi bechi ve'inayich min dima." Stop your voice from crying and your eyes from tears. Ki yesh sachar lepulatech nuom Hashem. There is reward for your actions, says God. In other words, God is going to give Rachel reward for what she did. Veshavu banim ligvulam. The children will return back to their. It's a very famous prophecy of um, Jeremiah. And the Midrash says that this story of the people praying and Jeremiah praying at Rachel's tomb and Rachel asking God to remember what she did to her sister is the story behind this very famous prophecy. If you go today, when you land in Israel at the Ben-Gurion airport, um, they have been very big when you get, uh, get off the plane. They're on the on the plane, it used to be you get down from the plane, now you're ready to go straight. But you see on the outside of the um, terminal, there's the words, Veshavu Banim Ligvolam, the sons will return back to their um, boundary, that we will come back, God's promise that we will return to our land. So for thousands of years, Rachel's tomb has stood in Bethlehem. And it was respected, even though we Jews did not always control the Holy Land. And there were times we were not even allowed to live in Israel or southern Israel. Um, It was respected by Christians and Muslims alike um, as a holy place. And they preserved it for us, like the tombs of the patriarchs in in Hebron. And um, Jews would always go to Rachel's tomb to pray. She was always, we always referred to Rachel uniquely as the mother of Israel. While all of our matriarchs are called our imahot, our mothers, Sarah, Rebecca, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, Rachel or Rachel is known as our mother specifically. And there was always a unique relationship between Jews and Rachel. In Yiddish, we used to call her Mama Rachel, our mother Rachel. And... um, and because of that, when Jews were able to make it to Israel's hard, they would always make an effort to go to Bethlehem to pray at her grave. Jews that went to visit Jerusalem, to visit the Western Wall, would always go, would always also go to Bethlehem, which is not very far away. It's very close, and um, pray over there. Um, and Jews prayed there throughout much of our history. Recently, in 1948, when Israel fought its War of Independence, Much of the area around Jerusalem, um, now called Judea, um, or the West Bank, uh, was captured by Jordan at the time, and annexed by Jordan, and Jordan did not allow Jews to visit. Not only did they not allow Israelis to visit, they did not allow Jews to visit. If you were American and you were, uh, and you were noticeably Jewish, you were not allowed to visit. Um, People did go, but they had to hide that they were Jewish. Jews were not allowed to visit. Um, so we were not allowed to go to Rachel's tomb. However, in the 1967 Six-Day War, um, Israel captured the land, East, East Jerusalem um, and the Western Wall, as well as Hebron with the Cave of Our Patriarchs, as well as Rachel's tomb, was captured, um, from, the, was captured from Jordan and became part of Israel and immediately Jews began to go to Rachel's, Keva Rachel as it's called in Hebrew, Rachel's tomb, um, to pray over there. Many would go regularly, it's not far from Jerusalem, in order to pray over there. Bethlehem itself, which is just south, a town that's just a little bit south of um, Rachel's tomb, uh, was mostly a Christian town historically. Um, 
at least till 1993 or 1994, it was mostly a Christian town because it has special, um, it's, it's special to Christians for their own reason. Um, in 1990, uh, since then, most of them have been, um, have left due to persecution. Um, but in 1994, Israel signed what was called the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords was an agreement between Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat that essentially gave the Arabs, Palestinians in Israel, independent control or autonomy within their own towns and cities where they had self-rule autonomy within their cities. Among the towns that the Palestinian Authority, as it was called, as it's called, um, was given control of was the town of Beis Lechem, Bethlehem. And in the agreement, um, as it was in the draft agreement in Oslo, the original, um, original agreement was supposed to include also Rachel's tomb, which is right just north of Bethlehem, was supposed to be given to the um, Palestinians. And so um, many Jews were concerned, were upset, and so um, they turned to Yitzhak Rabin and asked him to, um, that Jews need to have access and Israel should not give up um, Rachel's tomb together with a number of other holy spot sites that we have in um, the, these Palestinian towns or just outside these, Palestin- these Palestinian towns. And so... Um, Yitzhak Rabin added into the Oslo Accords that three Jewish historical spots, one is the Shalom al-Yisrael synagogue in Jericho, um, which is thought to be the oldest synagogue in the world, um, as well as Joseph's tomb in Shechem, as well as Rachel's tomb in um, Bethlehem, will remain under Jewish-Israeli sovereignty. However, um, it will the access to it um, will be up to the Palestinians. They have their own police force, and you would have to pass through their checks in order to get there. Um, and part of the agreement, they will allow Jews to go to these holy places. Now, while it sounded good on paper, many Jews were afraid that what if it does the Oslo Accords don't work out exactly as planned, which unfortunately has happened, and um, the Palestinians suddenly turn their guns on Israelis, and you can no longer go into their areas um, under Palestinian control without being afraid of being killed. How will they get to Rachel's tomb? And so um, they tried to influence Yitzhak Rabin, and he refused to hear of anything. He said, we are trusting them. This is an agreement. This is a peace agreement and we are going to have peace with them, and therefore um, we will retain the sovereignty over our holy places, but they will control the access. Um, and so at that point, Yisrael Meir Lau, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, um, is, was, the form, was the chief rabbi of Israel at the time. Um, he, was a very, uh, he was a Holocaust survivor. He survived, um, he survived the war um, as a young child, um, one of the youngest survivors, um, and he, um, his brother famously, co- famously carried him through the um, selections in a sack um, so that they shouldn't find him, 
And um, anyway, he, he at the time was the chief. He had lost his entire family except for his brother in the Holocaust. And uh, he at the time was the chief rabbi of Israel. And so Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau wrote, Rabbi Lau called Yitzchak Rabin. He had a personal relationship with Rabin going back many years. Um, and he called Rabin and um, he told Rabin, he said, I heard that you are planning to give away the, give the Arabs control of the road to Rachel's tomb. And Yitzchak Rabin said, yes, that's part of our peace agreement. We're trusting them. That's the whole idea of peace. We trust them. They trust us. We have to build trust with each other. And um, Rabbi Lal said, I understand. However, please understand that Rachel is our mother. Whenever a Jew, whenever a Jew needs a, um, to turn to their mother, they need something from their mother, they always turn to Rachel. They turn to, and they go to Rachel's tomb to pray. And Yisrael Meir Lal said, I, my mother doesn't have a grave. My mother, her his mother was killed in Auschwitz. My mother doesn't have a grave. I don't have a mother's grave to pray to, to pray at. But if I had a mother's grave to go to, I would never give up my mother's grave. Rachel is our mother. And we never give ac- away access to our mother's grave. And so Yitzchak Rabin, upon hearing that, um, said, you've convinced me. He went to um, Arafat and he said, Will you give us the road to Ra- you, we keep the road to Rachel's tomb or the agreement is off and um, Arafat agreed and so unfortunately some six years later um, violence broke out since then we can in the last 20 years we can no longer trust them Israel no longer trusts the Palestinians and um, thankfully they still have access to Rachel's tomb because they still control the road to Rachel's tomb because we never give up a mother's tomb so Rachel remains our, uh, uh, the mother of the Jewish people, one of our matriarchs, but very significant. The Kabbalah tells us that Rachel represents what we call the Shekhinah, or the divine presence. And um, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, is found um, what, what we call in exile, Shechinta Begaluta, in the words of the Zohar, the divine presence is in exile, meaning that as we go through difficult moments, as we go through difficult times, as we struggle, God's presence, the Shechinah, feels that struggle along with us as we go through difficult times. And the metaphor for that is like a mother who sees their child going through challenges. Sometimes the mother is in position to help. Sometimes the mother is not able to help. When a mother cannot help their child as they're going, sometimes even if the mother can help, it's not wise for the mother to help. And so sometimes children have to learn the hard way or learn on their own. And so then the mother still feels, the mother still feels their child's pain and still feels and empathizes and cries along with their child. So we believe in the same way as we suffer, God, and when we go through challenges, God feels the pain with us and goes through and feels it and empathizes with us and cries for us as we, as we go through that pain. And that is what we call the Shekhinah, and it's represented in Rachel, the belief that Rachel, our mother, is always there with us, as well as um, the representation of God who feels our pain wherever we are and whatever we're going through. So that's the power of Rachel. Um, those who have been to Israel hopefully have been to Rachel's tomb. I will be going um, shortly and uh, with a group from here and um, 
we will be hopefully we will be at Rachel's tomb, God willing, as well. And uh, if anyone does have the opportunity to go to Israel, I encourage you to do so and to um, make it to Rachel's tomb, which is um, the, she's the, our people, our mother, and the mother who's always been there for us whenever we are in need. Someone we always, whom we always turn to.